And I didn't want to accept the fact that I had that prognosis and I didn't want to accept the fact that I had cancer. And I, I, everything about me was to fight against the fact that I had this. This is The One-Eyed Man with Mike Stopforth. You are now listening to episode two of the three-part series with global speaker, author, and elite endurance athlete, Richard Wright. In this episode, we go into our first transition. We hop on the bike for a grueling 180-kilometer ride. We find out about Richard's first cancer diagnosis. We also find out what it feels like to learn that you only have six months to live. Richard's story evolves from there. It is exciting, it is heartbreaking, it is compelling, and hopefully it'll be enlightening and informative to you as well. Enjoy the show. All right, so Rich, in between the swim, the, the cycle and the run of a typical triathlon, they are transition periods mm-hmm. where you switch over, change the outfit, maybe fuel up. This is your first big transition in inverted commas. We go from being a elite athlete, feeling like your body is your most formidable weapon, well, your body combined with your mind. And for the first time ever, there's this big wave that crashes in on that reality. You're diagnosed with what type of cancer? I finished that race and five days later I went to go and see my neurosurgeon had a lumbar puncture um, it's the only way to determine the brain cancer and the results came back negative and he rushed the results back uh, the fears was an extremely extremely rare form of cancer and extremely aggressive and because the tumor had grown so so quickly he was determined that if it if the results came back negatively we were going to go into theater straight away so yeah. we ended up going to theater and uh, had a tumor removed from my pituitary gland. It, it happened so swiftly. So from a transition point of view, it, it, was, it was a very quick transition from Richard who doesn't have cancer to Richard has an incredibly rare and aggressive form of cancer. I'd done what we all would have done and I'd Googled to figure out what kind of cancer this was and how it was gonna yeah. impact on me and the, res- the results Google basically said death. So, so the transition was between Richard I'm an athlete and Richard cancer terminal death. patient. But then immediately we went into theater and all I wanted to know when I came to was doctor, did you get it all? Did you get rid of this thing? But now Rich, how far are we from, you know, that there's always that scene in the movies where you're in the, the doctor's room and they're like, you have cancer. How many days are there from that to the operating room? No, there are no days. A matter of hours. So literally they, they rushed the results through the lab. Only one of them came back. The, the other one took a couple of days to come back. And the results were immediately, okay, there's cancer and we go into theater. So about so, I mean, you, four and a half I hours. know something's wrong. I finished the race. Yeah. Go to the doctor. Doctor says cancer. I'm in theater. We're in theater. So, so that was a trauma. It, it was trauma, but it was a gift. Um, I, that idea of that, that long transition of having to go home, having to then do all the reading, sitting, thinking about all the symptoms and could, could it be this, could that be, could that be something else, could this, and then what's going to happen and then what, you know, is this thing growing in my head in between now and waiting for you know, operation? How do I carry on with my life? How do I do, you know, how do I work? How do I just 
continue as a as a normal healthy human being with this thing in my head so i'm extremely extremely grateful that at that time i didn't have any of that it was immediately we're going to do something about yeah, this can't even ask questions right no and i am i'm a bit of an a-time personality and i am very much action driven i'm solutions orientated so and i'm a mr fix it so mm. if there's a problem let's fix it let's sort it out let's let's figure out how we're going to solve this thing so that was great and i came to and the doctor was pretty confident that he'd got it all so then immediately it was okay well let's head, head into the next portion of the race because that transition went well and you know quick transition great dumped the swim cap and uh and uh lycra wetsuit put on the, the you know the cycling uh, helmet and and glasses you know jump at your bike and off we go and i didn't get far on the bike unfortunately in yeah. that six weeks after the op i had to go for radiation therapy just to make sure that uh that, that everything that got everything and because it's such a rare form of cancer and so aggressive and about 12 days into that associate 30 days uh treatment and uh, if you know how it runs normally monday to friday uh every day and then it, you take the weekend off and you hit it again the next week so it's sort of six weeks and into the third week we had an mri done just to make sure they were hitting the right spot and to figure out what was happening and at that time we found out that the cancer had already spread so it was legitimately one of the worst days of my life being called in sitting in front of the doctor i mean look me in the eyes and say listen by my estimation six months hmm. um so now you're into you know you, you, you where am i in this race <laughs> yeah you know um, i thought i was doing quite well and by the looks of things i've, I've had a blowout or yeah. Uh, multiple blowouts and what yeah, now the bike's fallen apart <laughs> i mean you've been in some dark places in races in your life before before ev yeah. ever having a cancer di diagnosis how is there any comparison between the extreme trauma that you go through psychologically in the middle of, of kind of the deepest the depths of an endurance uh, experience and how you dealt with or started to think about your diagnosis and your prognosis do you think the one helped the other? Are they completely different? Um, no, um, not different at all. I, I believe quite firmly, despite what we think, when when life shakes us about and we feel beaten, I've learned that we are fully equipped to handle whatever life throws at us. As much as we think we aren't, we actually are. The things that, that have happened to us since childhood, the things we've been exposed to, the things we've had to solve, the every single thing that you've ever been through has brought you to a point where you are equipped as much as you don't think that you are. And when something like this confronts you, you lean on those reserves. And some specialists, most of them have said over the years, Richard, if we could pick one person who'd be most likely to beat this former cancer would be you just in terms of who you are, how you think your endurance athlete background, the fact you're an athlete. And that doesn't really help me because, you know, I've got this thing because uh, they've also said, if we could pick one person, you'd be least likely to get it. Well, it would also, it would also be you. But irony. Yeah. It is a bit. So that endurance athlete that's pushing through hours and hours and hours of, of dark times, tough times, finishing sessions where you, you never thought you were going to finish getting through weeks. You didn't think you could get through getting through races. You didn't think you could get through, so, so my best ever race was a, a 9.16 finish time in Ironman South Africa, 16th position overall. Uh, first amateur athlete crossed the line. When is this, Rich? That was 2008. And even in a race like that, which was my ideal, almost 
if I look back now, perfect race. There were times in that race where I honestly didn't think I could continue. There were times mm. in that race where I thought my legs, there's no ways I can keep going at this pace on these legs that feel like this. And all of that prepares you. So at that point in time, there was never a, yes, you're going to feel like a victim. Uh, every single one of us is going to feel like a victim, no matter what, how life has prepared you, no matter where you're at, you are going to feel like a victim of whatever this thing is. And for me, it was brain cancer. And for me, it was a six-month prognosis. And, and I felt like a victim for a long time. And, and then I did what I, uh, the, uh, you know, the person that I described just now came to the fore. That was Richard D. Fix-It, sort this out. Let's, solutionist. Yeah. Solutionist. What are we going to do? How are we going to do this? And that was big. I went in a big cancer warrior drive. I will try everything, do everything I possibly can to beat this thing. Rich, I want to put a peg in there because this is, this is what I find. So, and I have the distinct privilege of being close to you and spending a lot of time with you in conversation, not just around this topic, but all of life and work. And, you know, we get to ride together. Well, you ride and I suffer. We ride. <laughs> and this is what just blows me away about my experience of you. And, and every time I hear your story or bits of your story and uh, reading the book that you've written, I just... I, I can't help but think that in so many of the moments where you pushed ahead, whether we're talking about the physical race or the metaphorical race, I would have stopped. I would have walked. I would have given up. I want to understand, and this is like important for me, what it is about your brain, <laughs> your mechanics that pushes forward where so many others, whether we're talking about a race or a diagnosis would stop. I don't see myself as any different to anybody else, to be honest, but I can only try and describe what it is for me. It's what drives you, how important this thing is to you and how badly you want it. In triathlon, it was how badly I wanted to get to the podium in my age group and how badly I wanted to qualify for Ironman world champs, Kona, Hawaii. That was what drove me there. So no matter how dark it got, no matter how hard it got, I had that goal and that goal was that important to me that I would do almost anything to get there. And I would override the, the switch in my brain that was saying, hey, you're hurting, we need to protect you, stop, you know, don't take another step and shut up brain, you know, we're not, we're not at the finish line yet. Uh, what is that stuff that will override that switch? And I believe that every single one of us have got that. Once we figure out and once we find that thing that is that important. So whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a parent and you're parenting a sick child and somehow having to push through and, and, and look after this kid and still go to work and do everything else, what is that thing that drives you? And at that point in time, it's, it's the trying to help a kid to get to the other side of whatever this illness is, whatever that is. So, so what is that thing? And, and if that thing isn't that defined, and if that thing isn't that important to you, you're going to stop and you're going to mm. sit on the side of the road. I've seen people who've had a, a negative cancer prognosis and they've been told you've got whatever, whatever much time they've got left and they literally have put their pajamas on and sat down on the couch or laid down on the couch and waited to die because that's, I accept that this is what it is and that's what it is. I've seen people who've got um, severe lung cancer and uh, they continue to smoke. Why, why don't they stop smoking? Why, why? Somehow in the brain, it's, it is not that important. The level of discomfort isn't high enough. And I think that's the key there is until the level of discomfort is high enough, we don't change much about, about our lives. 
if, if you're not that uncomfortable with the idea of dying, well, then it doesn't matter too much if you do. But if, you, if, you, if you're severely and seriously uncomfortable with the idea of dying for whatever reason, and for me it was leaving my two little girls with, without a father, mm. being divorced, two different homes, two very different parents who both bring something fabulous to the girls, but that one... One parent is now not going to be there anymore. And what then? One piece of the puzzle is missing now. There we go. And financially, I wasn't in a position to have left them where I would have wanted to leave them. And that's that's big. You know, can I afford to die? Yeah. It was quite a hectic question. And the answer to that was no, I can't afford to die for my girls. So that's a very big driver. That's a very big. And, and, then, and then I think the other part is that I am a radical optimist. Hmm. I, I, that's how I've lived my life. So I've had some incredible, incredibly spectacular failures over my life, and uh, but I've never ever had that feeling of something is too big or I can't learn hmm. what I need to learn or I can't somehow develop the skills or acquire the skills I'm going to need to do this thing, and, and I just throw myself into things. And so, so I think there's, there's a there's a big confidence within my ability to overcome things and come up with solutions no matter how bad things have gotten, and they really have got bad at times. But to answer your question, we all have it. It's just to figure out how much this means to you, your why, and why you're doing it. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man, and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of season one. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or the One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. Yeah, so I mean, there's an element of this where we're talking about just your genetic disposition and what you were endowed with physically and your ability to, but but you're talking about a more of a nurture concept around your recognition of, for lack of a better phrase, your purpose. But we're talking about a different kind of purpose here because a lot of the conversation around purpose in, a, in an ethereal sense is, oh, I've been ordained with this uh, reason to live. I've been put here for a reason. I've been, which kind of externalizes the idea of purpose. It puts it in somebody else's control. Somebody mm. else endowed me. Some person or being or universe has designed for me this reason for being you're talking about owning that thing yourself and going nobody's going to write that page for me nobody's going to sign that letter that's my responsibility i've got to decide what is important enough well articulate first of all i think that was a really important point about how well you can define the thing that is important to you and then secondly how effectively that becomes part of your your planning and your execution. And a lot of us don't do that until we have no choice, right? You're saying that a lot of us don't do that until we have a, a wave that hits us, a, a diagnosis that is, so we kind of just plunder on. I mean, we're in an interesting situation as a country right now, as a globe in the middle of a pandemic where I suppose we've all been forced to ask and answer the question of, what is really important in the face of dramatic uncertainty is that is that some of what you're talking about when we talk about the why it's not what i've been endowed with it's what i own it's what i decide 
For sure. As you've been speaking, a whole lot of thoughts running through, through my mind. But the first that I want to, to articulate is, is purpose is meaning. So, so what is the meaning of my life, which is then the purpose? So I don't think you can have purpose without meaning. If, if somebody doesn't, you know, you're, you're not going to have a purpose without meaning. So what is, what is the meaning of my existence? What is the meaning of my life? And yes, a lot of people, I mean, we, we've seen now where a lot of religious leaders are wanting religious services to go ahead, especially on Easter. And for me, sitting on the outside, I'm thinking, well, this is nuts. But for those people, that their meaning and their purpose is inextricably linked to something outside of themselves. Mm. That's not me, and that's okay. We, we you know, we, we're all different like that. So I've said I've had quite a lot to say recently on social media about the pandemic and about the position that people are in because I believe that I'm ideally positioned to to be able to help people because you hit the nail on the head there. What people are feeling right now is, to a large extent, very similar. I'm not going to say identical, but very similar to what I've been through every time I've been told I've got cancer that the first thing that hits you is, oh my goodness, I am a victim of this thing. And I think for most people sitting in isolation at home or in quarantine or whatever it is, that they are, even if they don't have COVID-19, they, they are, they feel like they are victims of this thing. Their lives have been turned upside down. Upended, yeah. Completely upended. And, and that, okay, well, what now? And, and that's a gift. As much as it isn't going to feel like it to most people, it really is a gift because that puts you in that extreme discomfort, that place of change, the place of, I now have a choice. I can either succumb and be a victim to this thing. I can moan about it. I can, I can hold up. I can, I can disappear within my own head, whatever that is, or I can figure out what is important to me and how I'm going to make that thing my reason for dealing with whatever I need to deal with here. And uh, that that is a choice. And I don't believe that everybody is capable of making that choice because a lot of people get stuck in that place of being a victim. So, so that's the first thing is, is I, okay, I, so I want to, I want to just, so there's this, this concept of what do I do when I don't know what to do, right? Yes. It's gov you're governed yes. by something, but now I'm hearing a potential contradiction around. You said we all have it in us to do this, mm -hmm. to, to find that boundary breakthrough mechanism to take that extra step, to get up in the morning, whatever it might be. But now you're also saying that a lot of people don't correct because of a, are you saying like a victim victim disposition, a, a sense of this is all happening to me and I have no way of changing it? What 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 do you mean by that victim okay. mindset? So for me, it's it revolves around thoughts. And I think the best way I can explain that right now is people sitting in their houses are feeding themselves or feeding their brains whatever they choose to feed their brains. So whatever those thoughts that they're putting into their heads, whatever they're reading on social media, whatever the reports they're reading, whatever the, the WhatsApp group posts they are opening and videos they're watching, whatever that stuff is, is going to govern the thoughts in their head. And and when, you're, when, you've, when you've chosen and when you've thought, okay, this is terrible and life is terrible and people are dying around me and they are and and I'm not I don't make light of that at all um, but that's not a new thing whatever we choose to make our focus we will attract more of we know that the law of attraction so th there's got to be a conscious thought where I don't like feeling like this I choose not to feel like this and because of that I'm going to stop reading those things and stop listening to those things and I'm going to look for the things that are going to help me psychologically or help me uh, mentally, I'm going to get off social media. What, you know, what are the things? What are the healthy choices that are going to help to change whatever I'm thinking? Because what, what I what I choose to think is I've got control of. I, I control every single thing that I think, 
um, whatever those thoughts are, I choose to put them in my head. And at some point in time, it's saying, okay, hold on, that thought is not a healthy thought, or that whole thought is that is not factual, or that is so. so, so and I, I mean, in, in our metaphorical race, we're yes. on the bike now, right? We've transitioned onto the bike. We're in a lot of pain. Yes. <laughs> a 180 yes. kilometer ride is no joke, right? No. To sit on, on a saddle, a yes. tiny little five square, <laughs> square <laughs> centimeter space. Estate there. You're, you're, <laughs> you're, in, you're in physical pain. Your legs are burning. Your joints are aching. You're sweating. You're dehydrated. You're, what are you doing in that moment on the bike, stuck in the house, whatever it might be, where, wherever we are? How do you... How do you change your thoughts? Oh, I love that you asked me that question. How do you change your thoughts? Because I don't know how to change my thoughts. That is such a cool question. How do you change your thoughts? So this is going to underline exactly what I said right now. For me, it's a mantra. I need to take my, myself to that place where I can control what I'm thinking. And no matter how I'm feeling, and you, you've, you've described it pretty aptly, no matter how I'm feeling, I, if I can just stay in time to the rhythm of the pedals, I, I, this is my mantra, I say I'm strong, feeling good, strong, powerful, strong feeling good and what's important is you've, you've actually got to say you, it i mean are you physically saying I'm that? physically saying it so i've actually got to say it under my breath yeah. so in fact, in fact if you if you watch videos of me racing you'll see that my mouth is moving and you'll be like what is this guy talking to himself what's he doing no he's repeating a mantra because what happens there were you taught that is that something you you i guess so do you know what's weird is um, the first time i started to do that was in 2008 2009 when i was racing really really hard and I'd heard about this idea of a mantra and words that are important to you and you need to repeat those words. But it was, it, for me, it was all internal and I would say them internally. And then the one that, that, that really struck me at that time, because a lot of people were talking about it at that time, because Lance Armstrong was still a thing. And his well, mantra was... Still a thing. No, he's still a in thing. In a different sense. Yeah, in a very different sense. And his mantra was, pain is temporary failures forever. Pain is temporary failure forever. And, and, and charging up the outdoors or whatever it was, that's what he was saying. And I thought about that quite a lot, and I, and I tried to say it uh, at various times when I was training and really taking strain, and it made it worse for me. And the reason for that is, so, so the words have got to be words that connect to you and connect to who you are. Back to, to that your, purpose we were talking about. Exactly. So for him, all I'm <clears> saying really in my head is pain, failure, pain, failure, pain, failure, pain. Oh, my goodness. I might as well just stop this. Oh, wow. <laughs> but for him, he was racing out of a place of pain and out of a place of Escaping from a father that that dumped him and his mom and the money and and he was he was angry when he first started racing and, and for him that was not getting back to that place and that failure that was big for him that, that wasn't that's not big for me mm. and then I learned it was quite interesting I learned a number of years ago throughout the brain cancer I've done quite a lot to try and study our thoughts in the brain and realized that when we say something when we actually physically speak something we are reinforcing a concept four times because we are accessing four different areas in our brain. So you first have to think something, then you, your brain's got to say, okay, I'm going to say this thing now. As you say it, you then, if you really access two areas in your brain, now you, did I hear something? Okay, yes, that's another area of my brain. And okay, what did I hear? That's another area. So four different areas that you are accessing and you're reinforcing a concept. Activating, yeah. And you're activating it. That's a good word. Thank you. And, and so what you're activating is I'm strong, feeling good, strong, powerful, strong, feeling good. But because I'm saying it, your brain can only despite what we love to think we cannot multitask there's not a single one of us on this planet that can actually multitask we are fast switching we're switching between one idea and another idea all the time so you can actually only hold one thought in your head and if the thought that i'm holding in my head despite the pain despite how i'm feeling is strong powerful feeling good i'm going to feel more of that stuff and then your brain goes to work your brain is the most 
sophisticated filtration system on the planet. Once I put a thought in my brain, my brain now needs to reinforce that thought by filtering in everything that agrees with that thought and by filtering out everything that disagrees with that thought, which is huge if you think about it. When I tell my brain I'm strong… It's like a computer, right? It's got limited processing power and that processing power is going to be allocated to the most critical resources and you've defined those resources. You've defined those resources. That's a very good way to put it. Thank you. And you define the reasons that I'm strong. So your brain is thinking of all the reasons to validate how I'm feeling, I'm feeling strong. And before long, you actually start to feel, cognitively, you're feeling better than you were, although nothing's changed. Although all you've done is you've spoken to yourself. So that's what I do. And I do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And all I'm doing in that moment of, I I don't know how I'm gonna get through this, is there's only one thing I can control right now, and that is what I think. So, I mean, are we talking about a, a form of meditation is this a like a mindfulness practice that i i mean if i consider the links that it has to rhythm and cadence and mm. how important that is for you on the bike you know just keeping that same regular incremental one circle after another there's a lot there that seems to cross over with and i'm not not in any way shape or form an expert in the field of mindfulness or meditation, but it feels like you're drawing on ancient truths. I think, I think there is some truth there. It's even heart rate related. So the heart rate and the breathing is linked and I'm saying it in time to my breathing and my breathing is in time to my, my pedal stroke or when I'm running, same sort of thing. So, so it's all in time. It's all in rhythm. That's the first time I've really put all of that together. Thanks, Mike. Um, but it is, it, yeah, it's all in rhythm and it's intentional. So it's all those wonderful words of meditation, intentional breathing, intentional thinking. Inten- it's control, actually, is what, what it really is. It, it, is you, you are focusing on what you can control um, despite everything else going around you. And that's the key to any kind of breakthrough. It's the key to getting outside of any place of discomfort. It's It's... It's dealing with anything ugly that's happening in your life is, is figuring out what are the things that you can control and spending your energy and your thought process on those things. However, you've only got six months to live. If we go back to our prognosis, this is, I mean, how, how do you control your thoughts when that is what the most authoritative person in your life at that point in time has given you as a sentence, how, how are you still with us? Okay. So I had to learn, I didn't want to accept the fact that I had that prognosis and I didn't want to accept the fact that I had cancer and I, I, everything about me was to fight against the fact that I had this, to fight the, the, the prognosis, to fight the cancer. I, I, as I said earlier, I became a cancer warrior. And I realized at that time that I, I was even, I was more of a victim to the cancer because that was my attitude towards it, that, that my entire life became cancer. So I wasn't Richard, who is a dad, endurance athlete, trainer, speaker, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Richard is cancer. My life was cancer. And that's a very, very dangerous place to be. And a remarkable thing happened. I picked up my girls from aftercare the last week of radiation and, um, they climbed into the car and McKinnon, my eldest, said, Daddy, really sorry, I've got this project. It's due for tomorrow and we need to go and get some stuff. And I won't tell that whole story. It's, it's a lovely story. But 
in heading off and peak hour traffic to go and get what we needed for this project, I was slumped over the steering wheel waiting for a robot to change. And this voice popped up from behind me and it was McKinnon. And she said, Daddy, are you okay? And I said to her, sure, like, um, I'm really taking some strain here, but let's just go and get this thing done. And then I'm going to go lie down for a bit before we tackle this project. And there was silence for a little bit. And then the voice popped up and she said, Daddy, nobody said it would be easy. And I whirled around as if, where on earth did that come from? Where did you hear that from? And I, 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 I sort of, I questioned her and she got defensive and she said, Daddy, I'm really sorry, but I, you know, I don't know what else to say. And, and it was, and it was the best thing that anybody could have told me at that point in time is that, hey, buddy, nobody's ever told you that life is easy. And yet every single time life isn't easy, our first response is blame. Our first response is feeling like a victim. Our first response is to focus all of our time and attention on this thing that has caused us pain uh, or change or whatever that is. And we're seeing it now with COVID-19. That's all we talk about. It's all we look at. All we want to read is this thing, this thing, this thing. We, we're obsessed about this. We focus on it. And I had to accept the fact that I had this cancer and I couldn't control it and I couldn't change it. I couldn't control it. Didn't matter what I did. Didn't, I, I could, there were things that I was doing to try and beat it, but I actually I had no control over that cancer. The only thing I had control over was what I thought. And I was living like a victim Everything was about cancer. And I figured out that I needed to go back to that place, which is my meaning, my why, my purpose, this thing that makes me feel that I'm in control, this thing that makes me feel that I am doing something, I'm controlling the thoughts in my head. That was, if I can just put my running shoes out incrementally, just little things, little steps, little, little things. If I could just put my running shoes out and go and walk around the block, I was going to overcome the thoughts in my head. I was changing my thinking. And if I could do that, I could beat brain cancer because everything else in my life was this is what you've got this is what's going to happen um this is what you shouldn't do you shouldn't exercise you shouldn't do this all the things that i know are good for me you know you mustn't do that uh, you're going to make it worse for yourself and i had i had to take control of my stuff and you did and i did so, and so what happened so i entered another iron man at that point in time i thought that's it i'm entering iron man and so hold on a second you've got six months to live so you enter iron man enter iron man I mean, that makes perfect sense. Right? It does. Absolutely does. Uh, even uh, another Mike, a good friend of mine, Mike Roscoe, um, we on a long run, long, slow run, just chatting. We, had, we have good chats. And he introduced me to the concept of amor fati, um, Friedrich Nietzsche. And essentially that's Latin for love your fate or embrace your fate. And Nietzsche goes on to say, because that is in fact your reality. And that was hard for me. I've got to embrace the fact and love the fact that I have terminal cancer. But until I do that, I can't change it. Until I do that, um, and I love Nietzsche. One of my favorite books is of his is uh, "Thus Spoke Zarathustra," where he talks about becoming the Ubermensch, the superhuman. And to become the superhuman, you have to walk across the the, the tightrope and and cross the chasm of despair. And the tightrope is important because you you're walking from the one side of, of this is who you are, and you're walking to the other side, the superhuman. But you've got to leave behind. You're going to tightrope, so you can take nothing with you. And you need to leave all your thinking and cross the chasm of despair because it's always going to get darker. Change is always messy. Um, changing your thinking, changing everything to get to the other side. And I think that's really important in, in anything is, is what are the things that do not serve us? What are the things we need to leave behind? Because if we want this breakthrough moment, we cannot, we cannot, we're not going to reach there by thinking the way we currently think. We have to think differently. But what is that different thinking? You can't just automatically suddenly think, ah, I think differently now. 
what is that gradual peeling away? And I had to go through a, a, a number of weeks, months even, of figuring out what is my identity? Who is Richard? And, and I, I can't be the person I was before cancer. Who's this person who has cancer? But but I don't want to accept that either because I'm not cancer. So who am I then? And and that was very, very important for me is is accepting and embracing the fate and then figuring out what what now. And and I'm one of those people and back to the radical optimism, I don't like to even accept that, that I've got a cold, a common cold. Because if I do that, I believe that I'm gonna make the cold worse because now I'm thinking about the cold, I'm gonna you know, th that's me. And some might, a lot of people might say this blinkered thinking, I don't, I think it's controlling your thoughts. So I don't even like to think about the cancer and something my parents hate. Whenever I see them or speak to them, they wanna know, who did you go and see, what did they say, what is the mm -hmm. prognosis, what drugs are you on, what, how much did you take? I don't even wanna go there because then uh -huh. I've gotta to admit to myself that I've got cancer. And, and I don't wanna do that. But um, I'm, Rich, you do have cancer at this point in time, right? At the, in the race, back then. Yes. And now you're going to do Ironman. Yes. So you do Ironman. No, 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 no. So I went into remission. Okay. Um, in, in, in August that year, I went into remission. And so you beat it. I beat it. And, and one of less than 120 people on this planet to ever beat the, uh, that form of cancer. So it was massive. And I celebrated. It was, uh, it was huge. It was like, hey. So yeah, I mean, you I got off the life. bike. There we right. go. I'm into, yeah. I'm into transition yeah. two now. I'm into T two now. Transition two between the, the the cycle and the run. And hey, I've done 180 kilometers on the on the bike, and I smashed it. Well, not just smashed it, but you literally get reissued your life. Correct. Everything that you your worst fears, all of the plans around how do I die well? I mean, for lack of a better phrase, yeah. Are now you the whole world lies in front of you. It does. And, and and everything is different. Everything looks different. Everything feels different. All your all your priorities are different. And this is something I talk about quite a lot. If if you when you're told you've got six months to live, a lot of stuff goes down in your head and you start to tidy up and you kinda of figure you get rid of stuff and you scale down and you and you get your life in order and you kinda of figure out what you know, how much do I need if I'm dying? Hmm. And you get rid of all the things that aren't necessary then you have to stop to think and say, but hold on two seconds, how much do I need if I'm living? Why, why is it different, yeah. actually? Um, who are my friends? Um, who, who am I going to spend the last six months of my life with? Am I going to spend the, the time with the people who Facebook tells me are my friends or, or the people that are my friends because of what they can do for me or where they can get me? Or, or am I going to spend time with the people who are my tribe? And, yeah. and there are not a lot of those. And I can tell you that if you have six months left in this planet, you're not going to do anything. You're going to do nothing that you don't actually want to do because that's what's important to you. And it's, it's the most authentic place that you could ever be in. Yeah, as real as it gets, right? As real as it gets. It, 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 that's the gift um, it, it, that, that terminal disease gives you is the gift of authenticity if you choose it because it's brave. You have to be brave to figure out you know, all the things that I, I have – have constrained me, all the things that have defined me, all the, all the boxes that I've been put in and I've put myself in, all of a sudden I don't need them anymore. I don't have to be anything to anybody. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. Uh, but who the hell am I, right? We spend all our lives trying to become and be, and you, we, we conditioned. I even got to the point of, of and it's going to sound quite quite deep, but it, I mean, it, it is and it was for me, is that, that real identity crisis of, who is Richard? All the things that my parents wanted to become, the school teachers, the, the friends, the family, the, 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 the colleagues, the career chosen, the, the, what, I'd, what I've done, all the things that are, 
who I needed to become to attract the women I wanted to be with. And then when that didn't work, who I, need, I needed to reinvent myself to then, okay, what now? All of that stuff is just conditioning, actually. So you go into remission. Mm. You beat this cancer. You're against all odds. You're, you're part of a fractional cohort that has recorded a victory against this type of very aggressive cancer. End of story? No. So we're in transition two. And... Um, about six months later, I went for another scan, just a routine checkup, and we found out that the cancer was back. And that was the second time in my life somebody looked me in the eye and told me that my time on this planet was limited. This show is broken up into three episodes with Richard Wright. Please check your podcast listing for the other episodes. And if they're not there yet, they should be launched in the next day or two. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com Click on the podcast link and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is a king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.